Would you please take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 3 with me this morning. Colossians chapter 3. Nothing is by coincidence in this life. Everything is by God's sovereign moving and working, His providence. And today is a prime example of that as we come to verse 18 and 19 of Colossians 3. I could not, if I tried, have planned to talk about marriage on Father's Day in this fashion walking through a letter, and yet that's exactly where we arrive. Now, I'll confess, I wrestled with this text quite a bit this week, deciding how far to go and how much to include and what not to include. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized how important and even imperative it is for the church to pause and consider what the Bible says about marriage. It's incredibly important for us and for society at large. In fact, if you read um, Dr. Albert Moeller's book, We Cannot Be Silent, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. This book, We Cannot Be Silent, he wrote about um, what he calls today the sexual revolution, um, homosexual relationships, redefining sexuality, trying to make gender fluid, those sorts of things. He traces the beginning of this revolution, the beginning of this movement, all the way back to the church's silence and neglect on marital issues, primarily on divorce and unfaithfulness and abuse. And he says the sexual revolution didn't just fall, didn't just happen in one moment or one evening or one week or one year or one month. Many dominoes have to fall and he traces it all the way back in his mind to say the first domino is when the church remains silent on the sacred value of marriage. I happen to agree with Dr. Moeller. And we see the fruit of that silence in generations past today. I don't know if you're like me, but I like to read the local newspaper. And when I do, I like to look in the section where marriage licenses are listed to see who's getting married. I like to flatter myself that it's less about gossip and more about celebrating marriage. But what's tragic about that section of the newspaper is in my recent memory, in our county alone, I have never seen, nor do I recall, a moment when there were more marriage licenses issued than divorces filed for. That's a tragedy. And the Scripture speaks about such things. And we know history proves the collapse of the home, the collapse of the family, primarily beginning the, with the collapse of the marriage relationship, leads to the collapse of a society. And so with all of those kind of background thoughts in my mind and my heart, I thought as we come to consider the relationship between a husband and a wife in verse 18 and 19, perhaps I should give it more attention and more time. Because not only is this applicable for those of us who are married, 
It's applicable for all of the people of God to know how to uphold the standard. To know what God calls for. And to defend that which God says is beautiful and good. So I hope to try to do that. As we come to verse 18, Paul has made a rather abrupt change in direction and change in thought, though in the principle of the context, it's not that big of a change. We understand more or less what he's doing when he makes this change, but there's no connecting phrase or connecting language between verse 17 and verse 18. He intends for there to be a break. All of this comes in the context of all of chapter 3 which we've been highlighting, is the life that the Christian should live now that they're born again in Christ. If you back up to verses 1-4, through four, where we talked about the Christian living under the new government of heaven. Paul tells us, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died, and now your life is with Christ. So we're governed by a different standard. We're governed by a different country. We're citizens of a different country. We belong to a different Way of living. We set our minds on heaven and thus we set our minds on Christ. And we do so because of chapter 3 verse 1. We have been raised with Jesus. Now certainly that references our future resurrection with Christ by implication. Which references our justification. We've been saved. So we will resurrect. We will be alive because Christ is alive. But more immediately it means we're new. We're different people. Even here on this earth, before our glorification with Jesus, we are being transformed. Verse 20 of chapter 2 is the connection. We've died. And now in verse 1 of chapter 3, we're raised. And so there's this newness about us. A newness that in verse 5 says, we put off simply what is old. It's rather more stern than that. Put to death what is earthly in you. Verse 12, we put on what is godly. We put on what is new. And verses 12 through 17 was all about living this new life in Christ as those who have been raised, those who have been born again, live this new life in Christ specifically in the context of your relationships, even more specifically your relationships with Christians. So what it means to live this new life in Christ in and amongst the people of God. As we come to verse 18 and 19 and really through the rest of the chapter, even into chapter 4 verse 1, Paul's spelling out what it means to live this new life in Christ in the home, in the context of the family, outside of the gathering of the people of God. See, the church becomes our, our identity. We, we identify now with the people of God as Christians, as those who are born again, but that identity doesn't erase these social institutions like marriage that we're supposed to uphold. And Paul's now saying, not only are you to live a certain way when you're with a certain group of people, but all of your life is to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus. And everything of your existence is to be transformed by your newfound life in Christ. Certainly, the way that you relate to your spouse or the standard that you call married couples to live to. 
And so Paul makes this abrupt change. And yet, we see clearly what he's doing. This new life in Christ reaches out and touches and affects every area of your life, including the most intimate ones. Those relationships between a husband and a wife or a father and his children. Now, I will admit, for many people, verse 18 and verse 19 is difficult. In fact, several scholars make the argument it's written because it's so unnatural for people. The very reason it's in the Scriptures is because humanity struggles with these things. This verse, these two verses will require effort. Prayer, submission. But the truth is, if they're going to take place in a God-honoring way, they must be grounded in faith in Christ. So again, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 come into play here. If you want to have a godly marriage that pleases God honors God, and serves its intended function, structure, and purpose, you must first have been raised, need to be raised with Christ. You must first be born again. You must first actually possess this new life that Jesus gives. Which, I say all that to come to this one point, really. If verse 18 and 19 is not just hard for you, but absent for you. It may not just be that it's hard. It may be that you're not really born again. It may be simply that you're not new. That your heart hasn't been transformed and your mind and your perspective hasn't been changed. You may oppose and resist these things, not because you've been inoculated from the culture, but because your heart is still dead. So as we wrestle with verses 18 and 19 and other verses that are like it. We have questions to ask. Why or why not are these things true for me? A little bit about marriage before we jump into these verses. In modern thought. Marriage is seen as an obstacle and a hindrance to happiness and life. Increasingly so, and to spare you the boredom of a bunch of numbers and statistics, increasingly so, younger individuals are refusing to get married. Cohabitation in our society is on the rise, as is divorce. And fewer and fewer people see the need or worth or value of formally committing themselves to another person in a marriage covenant. That's because marriage is seen as a hindrance or an obstacle to autonomy or happiness or life or pleasure or just self, whatever I want to do. And so increasingly so, people in my generation and younger generations are seeing marriage and refusing to get married because they don't want the responsibility they want, don't want the commitment. 
They don't want the pressure of a label. Frankly, for some of them, it's just easier to live with another person. And it's just easier to break away from them if I'm not married. If this doesn't work out, I don't have the responsibility to work at it. I can just leave. And so increasingly so, as I've said, marriage is devalued in society. Yet the Scriptures say marriage is a gift from God. A precious and a unique gift. We find it first in Genesis 1 and 2. It's present before the fall. Which means it's not a result of the fall. Which means we don't have to get married because the world's broken. We get the gift of marriage in spite of the fall of humanity. Now you put two sinners together in a relationship and obviously that relationship will have sin in it. And it will be broken. But the principle and the institution and the gift of marriage itself is a very good thing given to us long before the fall of Adam and Eve. We can observe history and see that God has so made marriage of, of value and of worth that historically speaking, any society who begins to deny it quickly collapses. For the Christian, we learn that marriage from the Scriptures is a primary means of sanctification. As you learn to relate to another person, as you learn to care for another person, even those who are not yet married or may not ever be married, it's still a means of sanctification. As you learn to find all that you need in Christ. For the Christian specifically, marriage is a clear picture of the Gospel and the church's relationship to Jesus. It's a picture illustration of God's goodness to us. And it's in that kind of loose framework Paul writes, viewing marriage as this sacred gift that should be valued and treasured. And in verse 18 and 19, he gives us the kind of the function and structure of it. Look in verse 18 and 19 of Colossians 3. He writes and he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Let's read verse 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We begin where Paul begins with the wives in verse 18. Ladies first, right? And this verse in particular in very recent church history years, has garnered much debate. Mainly because of the singular word submit. Or your translation may use the word subject. I told Jamie last night, I couldn't plan a better Father's Day message than to talk about the wife submitting. 
Yet that's what the text says. And that has garnered much resistance, much debate, much argumentation. Some have claimed this verse is nothing more than Paul's chauvinistic opinion. Right? Paul hates women. He just wants them to be quiet in the corner. Others have said Paul's just got it wrong. He's interpreting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 poorly. That God's structure and God's design is, is not as harsh as what Paul wants to write. In our time, increasingly so, the argument has become this is just a cultural issue for Paul. It's just a reflection of his time, a reflection of his attitude, a reflection of his society. Totally cultural and therefore not applicable today. Which, church is always a slippery slope. We deny any part of Scripture as cultural. That opens the floodgates to deny all of Scripture as cultural. And any time any major denomination falls to the point of denying the gospel, it begins in moments like that when they dismiss certain verses as cultural and not applicable. And just in logic, if we're going to say verse 18 is cultural, maybe we can say verse 19 is cultural. And verse 20 is cultural. Fathers no longer need to love their wives or love their kids and husbands don't need to love their wives and children don't need to obey their parents. Paul's writing in verse 18, and he's not basing this verse and this instruction on chauvinistic attitudes or bad theology or, or cultural temptations of his time. He bases verse 18 explicitly in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, as is proper for Christian women. It would be all too easy for us to impose society's view on this text. Or to impose our opinions on this text rather than to let the text inform our perspectives. If you bring this verse up or verses like them in any sort of real honest fashion in any sort of secular setting or secular academic setting, you'll be quickly dismissed as promoting an archaic view of social relationships. We live in a, in a hyper-liberation and oppression society where everything is about liberation and everything is about oppression. And, and that viewpoint, that secular worldview has been applied to Scripture, specifically verses like this. This is a verse that's oppressive that the church now needs to liberate themselves from. So don't listen to it. I make the argument today that this verse isn't oppressive. This verse doesn't need liberation from. This is a verse for the good of humanity and the thriving of women in the name of Christ. Let's talk about this word submit because so much of the resistance to this text 
comes from a wrong view of this word. What does Paul mean when he says subject or when he says submit? It doesn't mean like the world means. The world says the word submit translates into inferior or becoming a pushover or oppression or silencing or destroying or belittling or whatever else, whatever whatever other negative term you might want to use. That's not at all what Paul means when he uses the word submit. This is a word that's actually used quite frequently in Scripture. And when it's used in a positive sense, as it is here, it's connected to goodness. And it's connected to freedom. As is true every time we obey God. In obedience to God, there is true freedom. Freedom to live as God has intended. Freedom to live according to the design of our Creator, of our Maker. And in that wheel and in the center of that design, we thrive. The whole mess of sin, not the problem of sin, but the mess of sin, comes about when we rebel against the will and the design of our Creator and try to establish our own way of living. But when we uphold the standard and the rules and and obedience of God, we thrive and we live. And when the Bible calls us to submit in positive ways, that's exactly what happens. We see that to be true in Jesus' own life. Jesus is said to submit to His parents in Luke chapter 2, verse 51. And that is good in the eyes of God. And it allows for the thriving of that family. Jesus is said to submit to the Father's will, the Father's plan in John chapter 5. Later on in John 18, we find Jesus in the garden praying, Father, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's submitting. Should we say that Jesus is therefore inferior to His parents, Joseph and Mary? Or inferior to God the Father? No. Submitting in that context is a good thing. You and I are called to submit to each other. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. As Christians. Philippians chapter 2 carries the attitude of submitting to each brother and sister in Christ. Does that mean some of us are more superior than others and others are inferior to others? Certainly not. The confusion around the word submit in Scripture happens when we make it a word that deals with equality. The word submit in Scripture is not dealing with equality. It's dealing with the differing of roles in this marriage context. In fact, if we look in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we find male and female are created equal in the sight of God. God makes both of them. God makes them both in His image. God calls them both to walk with Him. In fact, Christ died for both. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul explicitly says this. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. 
For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In fact, in the very context of Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, he says there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And that certainly includes male and female, right? So what's, what's Paul's deal? In one breath, he's, he's breathing out equality between male and female. Saying there is no more male and female. Spiritually, everyone is one in Christ. On the same footing, the same ground. And yet on the very next breath, he's saying submit. Well, the word submit just does not pertain to matters of equality. In God's eyes, male and female are different and precious and equal. Paul's getting at something much more honorable. Something much more precious. Something much more beautiful. If we flip over in Ephesians chapter 5, we find this text to be almost identical in Ephesians 5. It's just lengthier in Ephesians 5. And he spells out, Paul writing both accounts, spells out a little bit more the, the purpose in Ephesians 5. In verse 22 he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is him, Himself its Savior. Verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The beauty of the word submit in Colossians 3.18 means women have this unique privilege, this unique divine honor to teach the rest of us how we're supposed to submit to Christ by the way they submit to their husbands. By the way they trust their husbands. By the way they delightfully follow His leadership. They have a unique calling to show us all what it means to trust Jesus. To delightfully submit to His leadership. To lovingly follow His instruction. Wives submitting to their husbands is not an issue of equality. It's an issue of showing the beauty of the church's submission to Christ. It's upholding that sacred divine relationship between Christ and His redeemed. So it's in that vein of thought. Let me give you six quick reasons or, or quick things of what submission is not. Or it is, or it is not, or what it looks like. Number one, submission is, in this verse, present tense, which means it's a continual act for the wife. It's not a one-time moment. Not an occasional thing. It's a continual act. Number two, it's used voluntarily in verse 18. It's not forced 
or even demanded from the husband. It's not the role of the husband to force his wife to submit. In fact, that's the opposite of the role of the husband. The wife willingly submits to her husband to demonstrate the willing submission of the saints to Christ. Number three, submission takes place in the context of a very special trusting relationship. John MacArthur says this, he says, Paul's word to wives is be submissive to your husbands. They do not submit to some detached, impersonal authority. Rather, they submit to the man with whom they have an intimate, personal, vital relationship. Wives submitting to their husbands takes place in a relationship that's trusting. They submit to a man they deeply love, they deeply care for, they deeply respect. And they show in that submission the kind of way we can know Christ and trust Christ and respect Christ and care for Christ. Number four, submission is not absolute. John MacArthur again says, Obedience in this passage is reserved for children and servants. There may be times when a wife must refuse to submit to her husband's desires if they violate God's word. A wife, when she submits to her husband by implication, says, I'm submitting to a higher authority than even my husband. A wife must say with the apostles Peter and John in Acts 4, I must obey God rather than men. And this is God's design. And I believe and I trust that it's good. And if my husband leads me in some way to defy God, I will refuse. My allegiance is higher. Number five, submission does not mean, never does it mean, that a wife shouldn't speak, that a wife can't disagree, that she can't express her desires, that she never gives input, or anything of that sort of a nature. As I've said earlier, this verse has the underlying implication that a wife thrives in obedience to verse 18. And then finally, number six, as I've said before, submission... is a positive, not a negative instruction that's grounded in the Lord. Verse 18 tells us of the permanence of this command. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is good for the people of God. It also tells us that this isn't humanity's invention. This comes from God. And if it comes from God, it should be good. Even if it takes me Faith to believe that it's good. Now the context of such a relationship begins to be fleshed out in verse 19. Wives submit to their husbands who in turn determine the context of their relationship. Now Paul binds both individuals in these verses. We often tend to give too much attention to verse 18. 
forgetting that Paul has equally, of equal importance, instructed the husbands and bound them as well with commands. Now, in Paul's day and age, verse 19 would have been the most controversial, most countercultural, would have been the verse that garnered all the attention. In our day, it's verse 18. Because again, our society says verse 18 is oppressive. But verse 19 for Paul was extremely countercultural. In Paul's day, as he's writing this, especially in the city of Colossae and in the Lycus Valley and surrounding regions, Laodicea and whatnot, pagan societies, women were viewed as little more than servants. Property, they were devalued. It was an okay thing for a husband to abuse his wife, neglect his wife, overwork his wife. And yet Paul writes and says, for the Christian husband, your relationship is categorized by love. Your wife is not your property. She's not your servant. She's the object of your love. In fact, he says, don't be harsh with them. Don't be harsh towards your wife. The literal word is bitter. It references uh, like having vinegar in the mouth. Taste of bitterness. Don't be bitter towards your spouse. Don't resent your spouse. Love your spouse. Be gentle and tender and kind like Christ. Like our good shepherd. In Ephesians 5... Paul elevates this command as well, just like he does for the wife, he does for the husband. And he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I don't want to read too much of what Ephesians 5 says into Colossians 3 because it doesn't say that in Colossians 3. But the underlying principle is yet again there because Christian love all throughout the Scriptures is to be patterned after the example of God's love and even grounded in the experience of God's love. In other words, as God has loved you, you are to love your wives. Which means husbands, you are to love your wife sacrificially. You are to elevate her needs, her interests, her desires above your own. You are to relinquish your own rights for the good of your wife. Certainly relinquish your hobbies, your plans, your agenda to take care of her, to care for her, to meet her needs. Even as our Lord, you may need to lay down your life for her. Husbands, to love your wives like Christ has loved us, means to love her unselfishly. Putting her before you. It means to love her comprehensively. Not occasionally. Not in isolation. Or only at certain points. Or partially. It's to know her and to love her comprehensively. It's to love her unwaveringly. Which is to be immovable and resilient in your commitment to her. 
It means to love her mercifully and forgivingly. Imagine the gratitude that would well up in a woman's heart to know that she has a husband who tenderly forgives and graciously extends mercy and patiently endures and lovingly shepherds who's committed, striving for a perfect love. This is the calling of the husband. And equally as beautiful, the husband's calling is to teach every other believer the way that Christ loves us as the church. The way you care for your spouse is to be an example of the way God cares for us. The way you protect her and provide for her is to be an encouragement of how Christ cares, protects, and provides for us. And this love is not an abstract feeling, a fleeting moment of affection or passion or attraction. This love is a decision, a choice, a commitment centered on building her up in Christ, valuing her in Christ, encouraging her in Christ, making it easy for her to submit in Christ. Just like submission, this word love is given in the present tense, which means also that it is a continual act. John MacArthur again says it could be translated, keep on loving your wife. Keep on loving. It's a love that makes a conscious decision to care for her temporal and her eternal good. To Ephesians 5 says, wash her in the water of the Word. It's a love that is of paramount importance to God. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it talks about the husband's prayers being hindered based upon the way he treats his wife. This is not man's invention. This is God's design. And counterintuitive to our fleshly nature. And yet, we can say, when you place your wife above yourself with this kind of Christ-like sacrificial love, you thrive. You blossom. You prosper. Love is not the only command given to the husbands here. Do not be harsh with them. Men have always seemed to be more prone to certain types of brutality. Especially in language and emotion. Paul writes and says, not for the Christian husband. Perhaps this is particularly applicable to us today in a society that's over-masculinized. Where men are mocked for showing emotion or caring or being affectionate or tender. 
Christ says the new one, the new born again Christian is one who is tender and gentle and kind and patient and caring and engaged and passionate and patient, not harsh. Men, you don't exemplify authority. You don't exemplify strength. You don't exemplify control when you act harshly. You exemplify foolishness and harm. Real strength comes in this verse. Having the control, the discipline, and the care to treat your wife tenderly, gently. That means Christian husbands are to love both in action and in attitude. Not to be unreasonable, not domineering, not unloving, not unconcerned or detached. Not rude or uncaring, but just like Christ. Which leads me to say one last thing to our husbands. It means you must be, at the very basic level, present with your wife. You must be around her. You must invest in her. You must listen to her. You must spend time with her. Lay aside your hobbies and your plans and your desires. May God give us all strength to do that with each other. May God give us strength when that relationship is not nor cannot be reciprocated. May God help us to be faithful and to believe that this is good. That I can love my wife and I can be gentle with her even if she doesn't recognize it. Even if she doesn't know. Even if she doesn't reciprocate it. That I can submit to my husband as is fitting in the Lord, as an act of respect to Christ, even if my husband doesn't deserve respect. This is what it means to be new in Christ in the home, starting with the marriage relationship. The relationship between a man and a woman. It's not only given pragmatically. Somebody has to be the leader. It's given spiritually to embrace your role in being a picture illustration of Christ and His church. I hope you're thinking at this point of two things. By God's grace, where you have fallen short, and by God's grace, where you might grow. And I hope you're thinking, 
in realizing that the way in which you relate to your spouse teaches us. Teaches us the love of Christ and the submission of the church. It teaches fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It teaches your children, your grandchildren. It's a reminder to those who are not married of the care of Christ. And it's upholding that design by which humanity thrives. The good news is, if these are the designs and standards of the Lord, and if this is what is to be true of those who have been raised with Christ, then God through His Holy Spirit will enable us to do it. To care for our wives and to submit and respect our husbands. To relinquish ourselves so that God's plan might be followed. Some of you, as I said at the beginning, you may not see this to be true of you at all. And the reason may be because you're not born again. You're too concerned with self. Too defined by the world. Too unwilling and selfish to be transformed. You must repent and be saved and let the Lordship of Christ affect every relationship in your life. On the other hand, you may be born again. You may be a Christian. And this may still be an issue of struggle for you. Pragmatically, again, I would say, talk with your spouse about such things. But also, pray fervently for such things. Knowing the great privilege you and I have to be a picture of the love of Christ in His church. And if you're single, I don't believe that the Word of God is not applicable to all of us at all times. I believe it's applicable to you as well. See the standard set forth by God and encourage the married among us to live according to it and celebrate when they do Look to those relationships and be encouraged by them. I think if we all consider those things, God would be glorified. Father, Your Word is not conformed by the world. It's not worldly. It it doesn't present human wisdom. It's altogether different. And sometimes it says things that in the flesh don't seem good or right. But we believe it's good. We believe that a husband and a wife, when they're following your plan, not only blossom together, not only find joy and and liberty together, but have the privilege of proclaiming the gospel truth together. We believe that it's good for a wife to submit to her husband that it is fitting in the Lord. We believe that it's good for a husband to love his wife 
as Christ has loved the church and to not be harsh with her. We believe both things reflect you as you came and submitted to the Father's will and as you loved us comprehensively and sacrificially as you are gentle and tender with us. Help us to see that we're not just merely relating to another sinful person. But we're obeying You and serving the great purpose of making You known. Help us, Lord, not to be defined by the world, but to have our perspectives and our hearts and our minds conformed by Scripture. Help us to believe and help us to practice. In Jesus' name, Amen.